0: Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. If you want to listen live, all you have to do is download the iHeartRadio app and search for Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Also, if you want to catch this show on video, be sure to check out Zumo TV, channel 719. That's where you can find Sports Grids Fantasy Sports Network. Enjoy the show, and thanks so much for listening.
1: Welcome to Fantasy Sports today as we get closer to the return of Major League Baseball. Craig Mish, Joe Pizapia with you here on the show. Got a lot to cover on this edition of FST here on sports Grid, Today is Tuesday, the 12th of May. Joe DeGood, see you
2: again. What's going on? Uh, it's uh, a day we're inching ever closer, it looks like, to sports. And this is very exciting. I mean, we talked a little about it yesterday. And now we're moving a little closer. And it's OK. I have patience. We've all waited this long. We can wait a little bit longer. But it seems like the wheels, at least, in Major League Baseball are starting to turn and move forward. And that's a good thing. So uh, I'm pretty excited. How about you, Craig? How about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, now we know that there is a plan put in place, and and I'm sure that as the hours go by here, we're going to start to get a little bit more clarity on that. But between USA Today's report today and Ken Rosenthal's report as well, it certainly looks like that whatever the owners have agreed to specifically, and we don't know all the specifics yet, is now in the hands of players. And some interesting developments from the USA today, who reported yesterday, Joe, that, uh, man, all of this this reporting about Arizona and Florida and traveling, I mean, it's like all done. Like, none of it's going to end up happening. <laughs> it looks like it's all rumor because the season uh, could be somewhere between 80 and 82 games, which is basically a half a season at this point. A potential postseason uh, this year would be in late October as opposed to early October in the home parks of everyone. And not only that, but no radical realignment for uh, for baseball. Everybody basically keeping their same divisions. Uh, the main wrinkle, I suppose, this year, Joe, mm. is that teams won't be traveling from coast to coast, from east right. coast to west coast. So there'll be more interleague play, which means teams like the Yankees and the Mets in New York will be playing more teams like the Marlins and the Braves. On the east coast, they're limiting travel. And beyond that, it, it does feel like it's closer to normal than possible. We'll have to wait and see, but clearly there's two major fantasy ramifications from this. One is it does look like the universal DH is coming, and then the other, and this was reported also, we'll have to get a lot of clarity on this because I think this is the biggest thing, is that the 20-man, if there is a reserve list, a 20-man reserve list, which is going to be a complete shakeup to all of fantasy in 2020 because those are going to be the key (laughs) players to
2: draft in fantasy baseball this year. (laughs) Yeah, that, the reserve thing is a whole other can of worms. I don't even know if I can wrap my head around it right now, to be honest with you. But, but that's the key. That is the key, to, but to the I, don't, I, have, I don't know about you, but I haven't really sat and thought about how that sort of system will work, uh, who is going to work in positively and negatively. But the one thing I do know is this DH thing was coming. It was coming for years now. It was always going to be a thing. Players Union wanted it. Uh, to a certain extent, I think baseball wanted it. And I made the comment I think just yesterday on the show. Enough already with the with the no DH. You know these guys, they don't hit. These pitchers have been specialized since the time they were in high school. A lot of them, they don't pick up a bat again from high school or little league potra- potentially until we get to when the major leagues. And you expect them to hit major league pitching? It's nuts. It should have been done probably a couple years ago. And I sympathize with the traditionalists because I understand. They like the idea of National League Baseball. I do, too. I am a National League Baseball guy. But at a certain point, you have to call a spade a spade and say what it is. And it's just been pathetic. We've seen pitchers get hurt in the last 10 years, too, running bases and then trying to hit ball, all kinds of stuff, getting hit with pitches. It's a disaster. Let's move on with it. And then the impact is, too, I'm sure we could speak to this right now, is what happens to those NL-only leagues, right? Because now if there's a DH – how do you? Do you have to go back and redraft this. You're allowed to just take any player and put them in the DH slot because some American League only fantasy leagues they have a DH spot and you have to qualify a DH. So what happens in the NL only league after this, Craig? What happens is you redraft everywhere. It's it's not
1: anything that anyone has done is meaningless at this point. If you want to keep your teams and keep them, but you're you basically I are agree in nothing.
2: redraft. What do you do in the keeper league scenarios? You just have to run it out there, right? I think so. I don't you just kind of stuck in keepers. There. If there's any keeper involved, I think you have to just stick with whatever happened. Oh, I, I think so.
1: I think okay. so. But but look, any league that considers themselves an expert or or community league that includes people that are in these show leagues that are teaching people what they think about the industry or about the community, you have to redo the league. I mean, that's. Oh, I don't opinion.
2: think that's going to happen at
1: all. It's not going to. It's not going to at all. But, I, agree I, but I, I think here's I think here's what's going to happen is that whoever wins the league is going to get lucky and whoever doesn't win is going to say, oh, what was I supposed to do? Everything got changed. I mean, this is coming. Like the built-in excuse is coming already for 2020. You
2: win, you I, win. I, you lose, you lose. I mean, enough already. If you if you drafted good players and you had a good draft, I think it'll show out. I agree there's a different set of luck now, especially because uh, some of the travel and the way the schedules are laid out is going to be a little different. Like that, that could play a part. You know, what you thought was going to be one schedule turns out to another for a team. But I mean, maybe Major baseball is such a long season anyway to not be cutting. It in, well, but <laughs> I was going to say, but to be cutting it in half now. Now you have this unique opportunity here where any team that's got players on it that has a really good run or a really good month or two is the difference of you winning one of these season-long roto leagues because now it's about who can have the hot streak and who can have the longest hot streak and sustained hot streak because it's not about two halves anymore. It's just about one good half and one good moment, and yeah. I can't wait to see how slow starters respond because is it going to be slow starters or is it guys who play well when the weather is warm? I have no idea. Nobody does. It's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, Joe, and going back to the DH for a minute, I mean, it's it's a little bit easier said than done because more or less what's going to happen here is there has to be negotiation. Essentially, 15 players in Major League Baseball are all going to start making more money, and I know it may seem trivial – in the grand scheme of things, but there's millions and millions of dollars to every single one of those players that wouldn't normally get paid because pitchers are involved. So like everything, there is definitely some give and take. And I think that's part of what's going to end up happening here.
2: Well, I I can understand that, but I think this is an easier workaround because the players union certainly wants this to happen. Uh, And in terms of the owners, I mean, with the amount of revenue that Major League Baseball is pulling in, I think that for the, number one, protection of the pitchers and the investments, just massive investments in some of these starting pitchers that they have financially, it seems like almost an insurance policy on those guys. So I can't see any major holdup personally from the owner's perspective. I understand there's going to be some more money going out there. I get that. But at the same time, it's also protecting their investment a certain amount to all of those National League owners who have huge investments in big-time pitchers or are going to make investments in the next couple years for pitchers. And I don't think we're going backwards from here. There is no other league of professional or non-professional baseball that does not have a DH in it except the National League. It's the only one. You can go every other spot all over the place, all over the world, there's a DH. Where is there no DH? Just in the National League. I mean, at a certain point, Craig, I mean, I think there's no going back from this, even though the negotiations might – Get a little wrinkly at times, don't you think that this is probably the end of pitchers hitting from 2020 oh, it, on? It,
1: it probably is. It's just it, it. They don't look at it as insurance. They look at it as uh, you know, Ian Happ becomes a 10 million dollar player, and Garrett Cooper becomes a 7 million dollar player, and, and but is that worth that to say? 000, make sure more that players. you keep you know a investment you make in say Jacob Degrom for five years. They don't look years. at it that way. They don't look at it that way. They look mm-hmm. at it as as right now more players are going to make more money in the National League than they did the year before, and the pitchers are going to make the same thing. They can take insurance policies out on their individual players and still get paid if those guys get hurt. They are not gonna be they're gonna have to pay players more money. <laughs> because of that, there's a I'm not saying it's a deal breaker and I think both sides want it, but that's gonna be part of of a negotiation. It's just not gonna be as simple as just, oh yeah, there's the DH. It's oh okay well wait, Do you wait want a it as here. a
2: baseball fan. I mean you're a baseball I fan I could go
1: either point. way. It doesn't make it whatever floats anybody's boat doesn't make any difference to me. I think it probably needs to happen for our fantasy purposes to protect our pitching investments, but I do prefer the idea of strategy in National League baseball, but look, I understand the point. You don't want guys, you don't want pitchers getting hurt and and you have to protect those guys. It's like protecting the quarterback in the NFL. The pitchers are super important. Uh, but again, the the 20-man reserve is going to be insane because any, If you did a draft back in February or March, let's just say February is dumb. Let's just say March if you did a draft <laughs> and you took a player like a rookie, right, thinking that he was going to get called up and I'm going to take him and stash him. And you come to find out in two weeks he's not on the reserve list. That's it.
2: The end. You have a zero on your team. I mean, well, what would, what would be the hesitation for a team to, let's say, like a Tampa, right? Uh, why wouldn't you have Wander Franco, your best guy on the reserve? Like why wouldn't you have your best prospect, who's major league ready, on because that they, list? Because they
1: because they know that they're not going to pay service him no or what.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And remember, everybody's service time counts as a full year this year, just with the eighty games. Mm. Well, well, I mean, Mookie, it, it, Mookie Betts is going to be a free agent after playing eighty games. Yeah. Did, well, did I mean, the Dodgers maybe. get their money's worth for that? I don't think so.
2: Well, if they win the title, they did. But not, well, what if not? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I I answer the question, but do they get to get only if they win a title. That's the circumstance would you say you they got their money's worth? Or he loves it there and resigns, which is probably highly unlikely the way the structure of the Dodgers is, but yeah, I mean I think that's the expectation is that you make that deal now, especially the pressure is magnified for you to win a World Series and it's magnified for the Dodgers because of what they gave up in that deal. And look, it, it's it, the the biggest winner here for sure is the fans because at this point we just need sports back and we need baseball back. I think uh, we all would want it back. And even if we can't go to the games, I think it's important to get the games going again on television because that is the main revenue source anyway for major league baseball it's not the gate it's the tv deals it's the networks it's the advertising money that's where the major money in major league baseball is it's it's not in the 10 dollar beers and the 20 dollar hot dogs even though we think it's it's partially that but not quite enough and i guess my last question to you about this whole scenario is do you feel like at this point with this new plan craig that this is something that the players will go for and if there is any hesitation on the player standpoint here, do they face a lot of backlash potentially from the general public?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think that everybody understands of the circumstances that's that's being kind of thrown out there. Um, I think that we're going to have a wild season. I think we're going to have a wild postseason. Mm-hmm. I can make the case that if some team decided, Wanda Franco's is one example, but if some team decided basically like the top five teams with the best farm systems essentially said you know what to bleep with it let's put all these guys on our reserve list and if there are any injuries and you're probably going to be some those teams are going to be very well prepared to end up winning there's a chance the younger teams with the best talent end up making the playoffs in baseball this year just because of having the guys ready to go and it's I'm I have to dive in on the strategy of it once the rosters come out and I believe Major League Baseball I'm sure that the teams are gonna have to announce who they're saving just just in case. And by the way, all of those players who are on that list are gonna be in at their spring training sites just basically waiting for the call, not playing against anybody except for themselves. Well take maybe. everybody
2: take everybody through wow. this. So you have your forty man roster, correct? Twenty five. But so but I mean typically there's also the thing called the forty man roster. Oh, right. Yeah. So take everybody for those people who don't know, how would you walk them through like what this looks like? Because you have your twenty five man roster who's active. You have your forty man roster that's always been spoken of, but is that dead with this other system here in play? I don't like, know the answer to that. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I I don't know it either, but I figured you're tied in way more than I am. Oh, no. a little more insight. That, so no, it's new I, for I mean, everybody. <laughs> it,
1: it, it could be it could be that it's the first forty. No, it can't be the forty guys. Some kids are eighteen years old on the forty man roster. It wouldn't make sense. So I look, I don't know how they're going to do it, but it's going to be really interesting for sure. All right, we'll take a quick timeout on fantasy sports today. We've got our fantasy sports birthdays and this day in fantasy sports coming up next. That's here on Sports
0: Grid. Don't go away Back
1: to fantasy sports today on this May the 12th, 2020. We got Matt Sells coming up from Fantasy Alarm as he gives us a little preview of the big NASCAR race coming up this weekend. NASCAR is back, they've got a race coming up on Sunday and again next week as well. They had very successful iRacing, which was more or less simulated racing, and some of that actually goes into the preparation of Sunday's race. I'm not a big NASCAR guy, honestly, but Matt Sells is. He was writer of the year. Uh, for fantasy alarm so figured we'd bring him on and have him come on and give you a little bit of a preview of that and by the way the dfs uh, prices and uh, there'd be a million dollar race on DraftKings coming up this weekend those will be out on wednesday all right so uh this day in fantasy sports history joe for may the 12th so uh yeah i, I think that this is a
2: good day to go back
1: and kind of take a look at what happened we've got a lot of baseball today too
2: yeah well it is may so this is like that prime season. I'm just glad we're past all the Kentucky Derby stuff we were doing the last week. Jeez, every day was another dead horse. Talk about beating one over and over again. But yes, we have a lot of fun Major League Baseball uh, this day in history. So I'm actually looking How forward do you know to the that.
1: horses are dead.
2: Well, I've got a lot of glue sitting over there. So oh, that's terrible. A lot
1: of them have been. A lot of them are still
2: making babies. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Some of those are, you know, from the '50s and '60s. I feel like you were throwing out these horses. I never. Stuff. I never. What's did the life one expectancy? The 50s or 60s. What's the ex- life expectancy of a horse? I don't even know. Do you know? Forty years. Thirty years. Do they live that long? Yeah. Really? I did not realize a horse lived thirty, forty years. So they are alive, Joe. Are you making that up or are you just- you No, actually I'm not. Right.
1: I'm
2: not making it up. And you're not only smirking, that, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't
1: do one Kentucky Derby from the 50s or 60s. None. No, the only one
2: in the 70s I did was Secretariat. That's it. I don't know, man. I just, well, he's dead. Secretariat's definitely dead. Thank like, you very much. There we you go. Know? But I see you smirking when you're saying- Jota <laughs> you hey, Maggio story. is dead too. I, know, I, I But congrats. you're smirking as you say 30, 40 years a horse lives. And I don't know, that does, that feels like a really long time for an Take animal. A
1: look. Google it.
2: I'm going to. Because every time you say Google it, you go like this after and you look like the Grinch. You look like the Grinch who's, you know, making up facts about horses. So I'm cool gonna go live. check it out at you the, think the break. A horse lives eight years. No, but I don't think it was forty either. Forty seems like a long time. Listen, I'm a, I'm there's just there's forty now. Horses that have
1: lived to be a hundred.
2: I I'm barely getting to forty here. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know a hundred. Again, the mark. There it is. I want everybody to look. That's the smirk of why I don't believe him. I would trust you, except that you keep doing that face. And every time you do that face, I feel like you're trying to get one up on me. So
1: Look it up. At All the right. Uh, let's start. And there is no break on the show. 1970, <laughs> Ernie Banks hit his 500th home run off Pat Jarvis in the Chicago Cubs win at Wrigley Field. Once upon a time, the 500 home run club meant something. Now, everybody's got 500 home runs. So many guys have 500 home runs, so it doesn't mean nearly as much as it used to. There used to be really cool items where you could get all the guys signed in the 500 home run club, and then you had to add Sosa and McGuire and Bonds and Pujols. There's
2: just and lots. Canseco. Let's not forget Jose yes, Canseco. I think he just got it. Didn't he get 500 or close to yours, a 498, I think, or something like that? I don't know, but he was pretty darn close. I'm pretty sure there. But Ernie Banks, you actually talked about him last week or two weeks ago on Diamond Bets. Uh, And it was great because we were talking about when you say the name Ernie Banks, it's almost impossible not to smile. And I never saw the man play a day in my life. But you just see the enthusiasm of all the clips. You see him. You see the interviews. You see his enthusiasm for playing the game and always a smile on his face. And I think that's an amazing thing to look back at a player and have nothing but like a positive feedback or a positive impact from that player i don't think you could say that a lot about a lot of athletes but True. universally if i say ernie banks i think everybody goes oh yeah ernie banks and that is an incredible thing especially considering he never won a world series with the cubs
1: no he didn't and they played on a lot of losing teams for sure but i can say go 452
2: home runs 452 all right not quite 500 my bad
1: all right 2000 we go to pedro martinez 17 strikeouts Uh, against Tampa Bay and struck out 15 in a 9-0 win against Baltimore to tie an NL record. So this is back-to-back strikeouts of 17 and then 15 for Pedro (laughs) Martinez. That's pretty good
2: here. Yeah, well, we were talking uh, about the Koufax dominance window, and we were talking about the Pedro dominance window. We were talking about 98-99. and I guess you could put 2000 into that grouping too, man. Cause that is, that's quite a run. Could you imagine if that was a two start week in fantasy too, if that had laid out like in a, a Monday start and like a Saturday start or something like that, man, just game over. <laughs> if you're playing in one of those weekly leagues, forget it. Pedro Martinez just kind of won you that week by his own. And that, that is incredible. He was just so dominant. Granted at the time too, in 2000, Tampa Bay was not a very good team. Uh, I'm trying to remember in Baltimore around the two thousands too. I think they were competitive at the very least, but Still, I mean, that is just an incredible run there that he had. He was just absolutely dominant in an era where it was so hard for a pitcher to be dominant.
1: 2001, I'll never forget this one. Mm A.J. Burnett had one of those effectively wild no-hitters. He walked nine guys as the Marlins beat the Padres 3 to nothing. The story goes that uh, Burnett didn't even know he had a ninth hitter until the ninth inning because he walked so many. And I remember watching the game with no sound on not realizing until the ninth inning that he even had a no-hitter. So I do remember this one very vividly. And, uh, yeah, I mean, walking all those guys, it's almost impossible to get anything like that done, and he did. Uh, Justin, Justin Gatlin breaks the 100-meter world record with a time of 9.76 seconds. And so we put him in this day in fantasy sports history as well. Uh, Serena Williams beats Maria Sharapova 6-1, 6-4 in the final of the Madrid Open. She keeps the number one ranking. And it was her 50th career title. And of course, Joe Serena Williams now uh, still on the tour with uh,
2: with a baby as well. Unbelievable. I mean, talk about somebody who kind of dominated the last decade, right? In her sport. Uh, Serena Williams, you could probably put up there on the Mount Rushmore of the last 10 years of sports, right? Is there anybody, you know, a Tiger Woods dominated golf for a while in that vein? But I feel like Serena Williams is right up there too. And just yeah. an incredible force, I think, in not just you know, women's sports, just sports. And I think it's time that we kind of Get rid of that little moniker there of women's sports like she's dominant in sports. okay, and she's had such a longevity in a game like tennis, too, where you don't always see that. You know, you see sometimes a little run at the end of a career like McEnroe or Connors had that one magical year where he was older in the U.S. Open. I think it was in the 90s where he kind of had that one little comeback in the U.S. Open and everybody got behind him. But Serena's just been doing it every single year for a decade plus now. and She's just an absolute beast, man. Good for her. Yeah, absolutely. No argument there. Uh, 2014, LeBron
1: James ties his playoff career high with 49 points. Uh, Chris Bosh makes the uh, three, and then the Heat beat the Nets 102-96. They take a 3-1 lead in the Eastern Conference semifinals. So some more uh, Miami Heat history here. And, you know, that was a really good run for for the Heat there. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. LeBron left a few years later and ended up going back to Cleveland but that was a really good time to cover sports, Joe, here in South
2: Florida. Have oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, in retrospect, too, you go back and you remember the the decision. Remember the ESPN, the decision? I do. That I was thing. working
1: live at the time. Yep. And
2: I mean, I remember watching that and just everyone being riveted to that. And it's funny. We never had anything like that since. And it was everything since before that. And. I kind of wonder if that was the one – if, number one, any other athlete could get away with that besides LeBron doing it, and if we look back on it, we think it was probably not the best decision from a PR standpoint. I mean the hype around that that was incredible, but do you think it was worth it in the end, the whole big spectacle of where am I going and then deciding – Alienating a whole fan base,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't it didn't matter now, and I don't think that people focus on that a lot now. Well, when you go back and win in
2: Cleveland, I think it took a lot of this. Of course, but
1: if he but if he had to do it over again, I think he said like it wasn't about like doing that show, whatever. But the point was they they waited like twenty five minutes into the show to make the announcement. It was like he was talking and talking and talking and talking like back and forth. It was so crazy, but. Mm -hmm. That was one of the wildest times that I've ever had in sports. I was working for the the station, the AM station that covered the Miami Heat. We had the Miami Heat at the time. And uh, he made the decision, and we and all of the sports reporters and hosts at the station were asked to do something different for that. When that was happening, there were people on the air, and they called me and they said, can you go to the American Airlines Arena and broadcast from there because they're going to introduce, it was the next day, introduce the big three. And that was that whole you know wrestling pseudo thing where the three guys came out there with the music and everything like that. It was me and Cliff Floyd. And so we sat all the <laughs> way up in the media section. They had our audio. I mean, Cliff and I are doing this talk back and forth before it started. We did not even, that was the loudest I've ever heard anything. We I, I don't even know if he heard me or I heard him. We were just talking. It was People were just going
2: berserk. It was one of the biggest events that I've ever covered to this day seeing Yeah. That. I mean it it's it certainly I mean it was a, it was a grand spectacle that whole era and you know what the funniest part is when you think about all the alienated Cleveland fans who burned the jerseys yeah, that was in and anger and then he comes back a few years later and wins a championship and then you would have had cool vintage jerseys you dopes don't ever do that never burn the jersey it's a waste if you don't like the jersey you don't like the player go send it to somebody who needs a you know a little bit of clothing or something like that how about that instead Yeah.
1: All right, this day in fantasy sports birthdays for May the 12th. We lead off with Yogi Berra, born in 1925. Yogi passed away a few years ago, got to meet him once. 1935, we've got Felipe Alou, former great manager in the big leagues. 1957, Lou Whitaker, circle that name right there because I believe in about three years when they do that voting again for the Legends Committee, mm. I believe he's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's going to be in. Um, but, Joe, right now they didn't vote him in last year. So, um, you know, they don't vote every year for the same. They, they do the Legends Committee now in Dallas, basically. So Whitaker didn't get in, but I think in two or three years he
2: will. I think and Dave he's Parker didn't get in last time either, which was stupid. Cause to wait None to of wait them were years.
1: close, actually. Uh, Whitaker, ridiculous. Parker, and, and Don Mattingly all well, were Whitaker
2: close. Was- in my opinion, one of the best second basemen of the 80s. You know, He's got to Ryan be put S-
1: above all those other guys. Well, know. he was
2: Ryan Sandberg in the National League, in the American League, at least in the first half of the decade. It was Lou Whitaker for me. I, I, I got nothing else yeah. to say about that. Part. Sorry.
1: <laughs> Good birthdays today. Tony Hawk, of course, born in 1968. We've got Steve Smith, who we discussed yesterday a little bit. One of the great wide receivers, probably future Hall of
2: Famer, I would guess, right? Is Steve Smith a Hall of Famer? Oh. 100% Steve yeah, Smith is. In the Hall of Famer. Absolutely, too. Yeah. You know, some great runs there. And, and, and you know, tied into NFL Network, too. That usually doesn't hurt your chances very much.
1: And then Lance Lynn, born in 1987. Lance Lynn, a phenomenal year last year with the Texas <laughs> Rangers. We'll see if he's able to do that again this coming season,
2: when there is a season, if there is a season. It yeah. looks yeah. like there's. And had a you great second it. half, too. I mean, he finished super strong, too. I mean, and now you put Kluber ahead of him in that rotation, potentially. That is a really good one, too, at the top. You know, everybody and has three, a favorite. Too. Yeah, Mike well, Mike Miner in the second half was a five and a half ERA, so I don't know if I'm sold there. What's your favorite Yogi Berra? Is mine's always uh, uh, when you see a fork in the road, take it. I like that. I always like that one. That's a good one.
1: Oh, well, I mean, it's not over till it's over. It's gotta
2: be. That's yeah, it's just like the one though. Yeah, I, I like the one also where he says uh, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. That's right. a good one. <laughs> Which you yeah. you know, the I have beauty... a book
1: on Yogi Berra. All <laughs> the beauty things, of those
2: is it some of them, like, really make sense. Like, I get what he's saying. It's like a lot of, you know, people don't like, I don't, if you don't like crowds, don't go there anymore. Like, it makes sense. But, you know, it's it's the beauty of Yogi Berra, who was that Yankee that kind of crossed over those two eras, crossed over from the DiMaggio era into the mantle era. So he kind of, you know, crossed those two incredible dynasty Yankee teams. He's a kind of glue in between those two.
1: Yeah. All right, we'll uh, take a quick timeout. When we come back next, we're going to talk about the NBA a little bit. It's been on the mind of everybody. And uh, when Michael Jordan started his career just before it, it was the changing of the guard, so to speak. We'll hit on that next. Plenty more to come on fantasy sports today. Craig and Joe, don't go away.
0: DailyRoto.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice. We play every day. All major sports, all year round, we never stop. Industry-leading DFS tools and custom projections. And now, the DailyRoto.com Optimizer. In minutes, build an optimized lineup for cash games and tourneys. Learn from the game's best DFS players. Join DailyRoto.com.
1: And welcome back to Fantasy Sports Today. Craig Mish along with Joe Pizapia. It's really been an interesting phenomenon what's happened since they've aired The Last Dance on ESPN. And I know that we've done a lot of analysis on it and people are talking about it all the time. And and look, it's very well done. We've got two episodes left. I wish we had 10. 10, I mean, who would have thought we thought 10 was too much, 10 didn't turn out to be enough. And the one thing that, that seems to be the kind of underlying factor for me, Joe, is that there were so many players when Michael Jordan played and just before that really I I didn't think about for a long period of time that have been on this show and and I and I forget how good Reggie Miller was and I forget how good Gary Payton was and I forget how good Barkley was with all the different teams that he played on with the Suns and, and Philadelphia and even Houston as well and clive Drexler and Sean Kemp. I mean for some reason it just felt and and I've mentioned this before, it just felt so much bigger it back did. then than it is now, and I, I don't know why I've lost my taste for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get back into it because I know so many people are still in love with the NBA and they still watch it all the time and talk about it all the time, and I know I've shifted primarily over to uh, baseball and football, but I've, I've got to give it a second look because I feel like I, mu- I, I must be missing something good that's going on with the way the NBA is still so
2: popular today. It's one of the worst things about this timing of this documentary is that there's no basketball to watch. Because I think people would sort of spark this love affair. I'm exactly like you. I could not have been a bigger basketball fan in the 90s, in the 80s. And even slightly into the 2000s, even my dad was not the biggest sports guy. He used to sit and watch Michael Jordan Knicks games with me, Michael Jordan versus the Jazz with Michael Jordan versus anybody. He would sit and watch those games start to finish, which is not an easy thing for my dad. He was not the biggest sports guy, especially basketball, but he would watch and be riveted. And Friday nights, I remember like, you know, being like seventh grade or whatever. I'd come home and hey, basketball games on tonight. and Then we'd make sure everything was done by the time tip off happened. And it was special. And I think part of the reason it was special is because it was before the era of all the stars kind of ganging up together. You know, you just talked in the last segment before about that Bosh, LeBron, Dwayne Wade kind of scenario there. And when you go back and you remember, every team seemed to not only have a superstar, but almost have a, a number two. that was pretty damn good. I always call it the NBA Jam era of the NBA, because basically it was. I mean, if you looked, it was Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. There was Dan Marley and Charles Barkley. You know, there everybody had their duo, Shaquille Neil and Penny Hardaway. And, and there were a lot of these duos and every night, no matter what game was on, you knew you were not gonna get just one star on a team. You were gonna get multiple stars on both teams and it felt elevated. And it also, to a certain extent, it was the golden age of the NBA because there was so much talent just in the league at the time. Between the Kemalajuan, between Patrick Ewing, you had this era of there were still centers in basketball who were scoring and and kind of still the thing. I mean, usually built teams around big men, and then you had this other new group of players, the Michael Jordan grouping of players. These guys who had phenomenal skill sets, who were you know a different kind of breed. The scores, the guys that had more flash, had more swagger a little bit too. So. It was a fascinating transition, and I picked this year of the 84-85 season because that's when a lot of these guys came into the league. You saw Akima Olajuwon. You saw who was the number one overall pick. Uh, then you had Michael Jordan taking third overall. You had uh, kind of the old-school Celtics, still really, really good. You had the old-school Lakers really good. This was the beginning of the Lakers kind of taking the edge on the Celtics in this rivalry, uh, in this particularly year, and they had beaten them. This was that big championship for them in 85. And uh, finals MVP, the oldest finals MVP, which was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So you have an older game starting to all of a sudden in 1984 shift to a younger game as Barkley, as Ewing, as Jordan kind of take over. And that's why I think you can kind of pinpoint 1984-85 season as the dividing line between the old NBA of the 70s and the early 80s, and then that new NBA of the late 80s into the 90s.
1: Yeah, I'm Dominic Wilkins involved in that too. Yes. He and Larry Bird used to go at it back and forth. And, you know, the one name really from this era that was toward the end, and I know that he still played into the late 80s, but Bernard King, of course, in the. Oh, York. yes. And, and he never gets mentioned with all of these other guys. You know? Short it's, career. It's kind of funny. He yeah, averaged thirty two point
2: nine points that year in 94, ninety-four eighty-five. That's pretty incredible there. But
1: yeah, but he never got to the the that golden era, like you said. He like mm-hmm. he never played at a high level at that point. And he was probably one of the best players in the NBA at a time where people really weren't paying that close attention to the NBA. You know, yeah. Like and,
2: that's... and unfortunately for him too, the, the window was short because of the injuries. But then on top of it, the guys that came in, I mean, think about this rookie class here in 84. Jordan, Akeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, and John Stockton. Not only were these transcendent players, but they had long careers. I mean, Akeem Olajuwon, John Stockton, Barkley, these guys played for, you know, a very long time and at a very high level. I think sometimes you're used to sometimes players like Bernard King kind of burning out and, and you know, whether it be injuries or other reasons. And even, even after this era, we talked about Tracy McGrady and a couple other players where they had windows, Anthony Hardaway, but it never quite had the longevity. Uh, in 1985, that All-Star game you were talking about, too, with Dominique Wilkins, he won the slam dunk contest that year. Uh, so that was another... Again, that beginning of the slam dunk contest and the NBA as this grand scheme entertainment that it hadn't been before. And the beginning of the middle 80s is when that all-star weekend for the NBA became much watched television.
1: Yeah, I went to uh, one NBA all-star game. I went uh, in Dominique Wilkins, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he I don't know if he won the slam dunk contest, but he may have been the runner up. It was it was he or Kenny
2: Walker. Remember Kenny Skywalker that was on the Knicks? Yeah, Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Kenny Skywalker, I think that was I want to say is it 89?
1: It, yeah, that sounds right. And not only that but I if I'm not mistaken, I think Michael Jordan was in the three-point
2: contest. He one. might have been.
1: He I mean, might was have. Jordan been. and Bird.
2: Well, you three-point. had the you had the Spud Webb, the Jordan, the Dominique, those are the guys I always think of in the mid-80s in the dunk contest and you know, also looking at uh, this is another huge kind of milestone. This is when Turner Broadcasting started their NBA relationship. So, you want to talk about all of a sudden, we talked about the impact of the Atlanta Braves and baseball at the superstation. How about the impact of the TBS deal? uh with the nba and having all of those games on there that they had so that was the beginning of tbs getting involved in turner broadcasting getting involved in the nba and that was able to get into a lot more homes too especially places that didn't have a basketball team necessarily you're living out there in nebraska or something you don't really have a basketball team and now you're getting all this nba action uh it was also the Sacramento the kings uh played their final game in kansas city moved to sacramento so some transitions, too, in terms of teams moving around. Uh, also, if you recall, this was also when the Joe Louis Arena had some issues. Uh, they were actually – actually, excuse me, the Pontiac Silverdome uh, collapsed, I believe. The roof collapsed at the Silverdome, and the Pistons were forced to the Joe Louis Arena for that period of time. So when you remember, things looked a little weird there when you see Pistons games. That was kind of why, because <laughs> you always look back and go, why do those Pistons games during the 80s sometimes look a weird? I think they weird? had the raised floor. Yeah, they had it was a very strange environment, very non-NBA. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned who were the best that year, Bernard King, points per game, 32.9. You kind of wonder what might have been for him and Patrick Ewing because Patrick Ewing, I think, always kind of lacked that other guy. Starks had some moments. Charles Oakley was a great player. You know, he had some really good talent at times, but he never had a guy like Bernard King in any other run.
1: Yeah, no, he didn't. And, uh, no, it's it's... I mean, this this season almost seems like the previous season before Jordan came in was kind of like the season that Jordan came in just changed everything. And and you're right, there were so many rookies right around that area. Him and Carl Malone and Stockton was shortly after that and Barkley and Ewing. Uh, It's just incredible. Without
2: Jordan in this era, too, you could even imagine a situation probably where so many of these guys might have had more than one. Because there's a good chance if Jordan's not around that the Jazz probably went back-to-back those years. They went back-to-back to to the finals, (laughs) so they run with the Pistons. But here's another name, too, from the kind of the past of basketball. Rebounds per game, Moses Malone of the 76ers. Another guy who was very good in his era, too, does not get a lot of credit. Uh, But you look back at some of these names, too. This is really the Showtime Lakers kind of stepping up and becoming the thing and kind of— finally stepping up to the Celtics, who had kind of physically beaten them for a couple years. And then it really became the Lakers who just found that other gear, and Magic kind of got pushed to the brink there. And this is kind of that era of the Showtime Lakers, where Magic was the guy. And then a couple years later, and you know, all of a sudden, by the time 89, 90 rolls around, you've got Michael Jordan being the guy in the NBA.
1: I played NBA fantasy in the 80s, too. Did you really? Had- I
2: yeah. That's that's amazing. That must have been a fun thing to do, <laughs> 80s fantasy. We had um, – well, actually, you know
1: what? I don't know if it was – it was the late 80s. Uh, we did it in my high school, mm-hmm. and it was probably like a 10-team league. We were all writing everything down, of course. We created our own scoring system. Do you
2: have the graph paper?
1: <laughs> I don't even remember how we did it, but the teachers were in on it.
2: Oh,
0: we had, nice. We
1: had the teachers. Yeah, we that's had the good. teachers in on it too, yeah. Uh, NBA and, was that. And I yeah, it was just it was a lot of fun. I remember I used to go into the AV room and record on VHS like N- NBA highlights and videos, and then put them together to music and stuff like that. It was it was a really exciting time, and I collected. I don't know why I never had a Michael Jordan rookie card. I mean, I don't know like. I'm just stupid.
2: Well, I think Cards for Basketball, in all fairness to you, Cards for Basketball didn't really take off. No, that one set
1: is the set to have. Yeah, I know exactly the one you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah.
2: Cards for Basketball did not take off until the peak Michael Jordan era, and that's also happened to coincide with the peak of – collecting baseball cards too. So we're talking about like the late eighties is when it picked up. So the early to mid eighties, not so much for basketball cards, even for baseball cards, kind of stale. Uh, but check out this all, all NBA first team, Larry Bird a forward, Bernard King a forward, Moses Malone, Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson. I mean, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Fame talent, Hall of Famer, unbelievable. Sixth man of the year that year was Kevin McHale. Defensive player of the year was big Mark Eaton from the Utah Jazz. Rookie of the year was Michael Jordan, who led his team in four categories, the first rookie to ever lead his team in four statistical categories. What
1: about That's- Sam Perkins?
2: Sam Perkins, all rookie NBA team, along with Sam Bowie, who, you know, the showbladers took a lot of flack there for taking Sam Bowie, but at the time they had who? Clyde Drexler. And they didn't, they thought that that would be too similar of a player to take Jordan. It wasn't worth doing. So they went with the big man. NBA was still about big men. Sam Bowie was that guy. Do they regret it? Probably, but at the same time, I think logically it made a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, no, just, it's it's wild to think about those times and the players that are involved there. Ralph Sampson too is another name. Oh, uh, another
2: guy, yeah. I, I Fantastic college Houston Rockets.
1: Too. Yeah, he certainly did have one. All right, um, okay, so we gotta take a quick time out. Coming up next, we'll break down more of the latest as to what is happening in our world in sports and fantasy sports coming up in our second hour of our show which will be in about 15, 20 minutes from now, we'll be able to hit on some of the season win totals. So we're going to take a look at the Giants and the Jets, season win totals in 2020. Also, Matt Sells is going to join us from Fantasy Alarm to go over the big NASCAR race coming up this weekend. Of course, we have another uh, a golf tournament uh, for charity coming up this weekend. Tiger, Phil, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. So all of those things we'll be discussing throughout the week and just a quick reminder a little bit later on today for those of you who are watching us live on any of our streaming apps like Zumo TV, Pluto TV or even stir uh, and also over at sportsgrid.com you'll be able to watch Scott Farrell's show live from coast to coast. He's on every single day now live. So make sure you send messages in, ask any questions that you want. We'll answer them for you. If you have any questions about this show, hit us up on Twitter at Craig Mish, at Joe Pizza, PS17, and also at SportsGrid. We'll be back with more right here on FST on Sports Grid in just two minutes. Don't go away.
0: DailyRoto.com. Learn from the game's best DFS players. We don't just give you premier advice.
1: And welcome back to fantasy sports today. We've been touching on our different fantasy leagues. Now, Joe, are you in any dynasty leagues at all? Do you play in any fantasy baseball or fantasy football dynasty leagues where right now you're concerned with any players or anything like
2: that? or? Well, I mean, in terms of baseball, yes. I'm actually not in an NFL dynasty league. I, I'd like to be, though. But I uh, haven't actually ended up doing that. I do a lot of leagues every year, so I guess that's part of the reason. So doing a lot of the NFL leagues is a little harder when you have the dynasty, and that takes a lot of your focus. But... I am in a 24-team dynasty league with the likes of Scott White from CBS and Nando DeFino of The Athletic and Al Melchior and a lot of other of those uh, very established baseball folks. It's been running for almost a decade now. And not only is it 24 teams deep, but it's actually 10 minor league spots. So that's 240 rostered minor leaguers. And it's an auction scenario with escalating contracts. It is the most challenging, difficult league. I missed the playoffs by like a game or two, a few years. Other years you have one major injury, that's it. Because there's no coming back from it because there's no replacement value on the waiver wire. The waiver wire is is jack. There's nothing there, it's terrible. So it is, every year I feel like, you know what? This league is impossible, it's ridiculous. I don't wanna do it. And every year I come back again. So I don't know, here I am, we had the draft and uh, I don't think I'm gonna contend this year. I've already dealt with some injuries that I haven't even started playing yet, so we'll see.
1: Yeah, I'm in um, a league myself, uh, a dynasty football league, and we're going to go over some of the rookies to potentially help me with my draft that's coming up. But right now, yesterday, Joe, a restricted free agency began. It's it's this crazy league that Brad Ziegler came up with all the rules. I can't even follow it. I don't I don't even know what's going on half the time. But I'm in this league. I so you're in discussion with the free agents? Is that what you're... <laughs> yeah, basically it's an auction... For Uh restricted free agents. That's what's going on right now. And so the bidding starts. It lasts a couple days. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the bidding, it basically, the team that had the rights to the player the year before can match the salary of the player. So some of the players go for astronomical numbers. And I have the most cap space of any of the teams left. But all I'm essentially doing is bidding on these players for two different reasons. First, so it bids up the guy who has to decide whether or not he keeps him or not. And second, if I do acquire the player, it's only just so I could trade the player at some point in the middle of the season. That's basically it. So the best restricted free agents that are available right now, uh, Kenyon Drake. Who, you know, again, you have to think it through a little bit. Like Kenyon Drake was a player that no one really thought anything of last year, so he was essentially... I, uh, I guess let's was not caught, say no one.
2: Whatever. Let's not say no one, but okay. He was nothing for... 12 weeks. I know, but I gave him a lot of love for two years and I've been wrong about him until finally he got traded. Thank God. Thank God he finally got out of there. But uh, there's, there's a community of people there with still that would, like, not I'm, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm bidding there. him up, and I don't even like him, but I have no choice. I'm going to do it anyway oh, but just to hurt Why wouldn't you else. like
2: him? You need running backs, and on top of which, that Kingsbury offense is going to be better this year and more efficient this year. I don't know if you want to just kind of thumb your nose and dismiss him right now, because maybe there are some people in the league who don't still don't think he's a thing. But in the second half last year, after week nine, he finishes for RB number four. I think that's something worth considering.
1: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan, but I, I bid him up there. So I, uh, him, he's available, so I bid. I'm up to like $30 on him. He'll go for 40 or 50 which is fine. Uh, uh, I had Julio Jones, and we started this this uh, league three years ago. And so my opportunity with Julio Jones was, was, do I give him a three-year contract or a four-year contract? I didn't expect Julio Jones to keep playing at this level. I ended up trading him last year. He's a restricted free agent, so I could bid on him, so he's available uh Todd is available. The team that had Gurley cut him, clearly they're not gonna pay him sixty dollars. That was his salary. David Johnson, I had him, he's sixty dollars. Uh, Cooper Cup is mine. He's up for restricted free agency. And so there, you know, it's it's just interesting to see that there's a bunch of players that I I probably won't end up acquiring all these guys because the teams can just match and then well, I won't get the anyone. Budget? What's the uh, salary cap here? I believe it's I believe it's two fifty or something like that. 250. I got, I got, I, I, you know what? I'm not even sure. I'm not. Well, positive. here's a, I know, I say. know I have a lot of money. I
2: have the most. <laughs> well, you have a lot of money, but here's, I think you want to have a plan to be, cause you never know what's going to happen in the NFL, right? Strange things happen every year. Right. But and I have the it, most money. <laughs> right. But we also just talked about having, you know, a scenario where a lot of these rookie running backs that are coming in. Right. But they're free. Looking, the rookie they're running free. backs are a buck or two. Right, and you're gonna you're gonna take them and and you should. That's right. But they're not going to and play
1: to a four year contract.
2: Right, and you should. But
1: so I won't we have also to talk worry about, about the money.
2: <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about the first six weeks of the twenty twenty season. And if those guys do come on, if the Taylors and Swifts of the World do have really good, let's say, weeks eight and nine through the rest of the season, but if you have somebody, you take a shot on a Todd Gurley people have soured on, and he does play well at least for half of a season. Why not get in and dip your feet into that pool? Because that would seem to make a little bit of sense. Short-term commitment, one year, you get rid of him. He's got one year on his deal. I mean, I understand that there's some negatives attached to Kenyon Drake and Todd Gurley and some of those guys. That's why I'm
1: doing Drake. I am. I'm going after Drake, but I'm not going after Todd Gurley.
2: Well, I think you go after everybody at the right price in your scenario. You said you're weak at running back. You told me yesterday you got nobody there. And then a bunch of the guys. I'll I'll end up with Drake. And you know what? I think ending up with Drake is pretty good. I would strongly recommend. I think there's a sentiment out there where there's people who still don't believe it. But if you go back and look at how efficient he was running the football, not just last year at times for the Cardinals, but even at moments in 2018 when he was given carries. The problem's always been he was never given the proper workload. He wasn't allowed to be the guy. He's in an offense right now where he's got... Uh, Deandre Hopkins, Larry Fitzgerald. He's got a lot of guys who can stretch the field. Chase Edmonds was productive when he was running in this offense last year. And yeah, Kenyon Drake had some big games, but again, this was a guy that came in halfway into a season with a team to learn a playbook. That is not an easy thing to do. So Kenyon Drake is, I think a guy on the rise and I think is worthy of say a second round pick. And that's going to equivalent somewhere. I would say in price range, you said he's up to 30 already. Yeah, he'll probably go for more. If you I'm can get him for, for under corner. 40, I think that's a terrific value. Yeah,
1: I'm going to get him. I'll pay the max amount. It doesn't make a difference. I, I literally cannot fill up my salary cap. It's impossible. And in two weeks, I can cut Antonio Brown, and he's 60 bucks.
2: So Well, then yeah. I would I would bid hard, and I would take a lot. Look, I know you don't want to hear it. I'm going to say it anyway. My advice to you is kick the tires on Gurley at the right price. One-year deal and an offense that threw the ball a ton to the running back last year. Last year, he did not get a lot of receptions. They scaled him back tremendously in the passing game with the Rams. That is not how the Falcons work. Go look at Devontae Freeman. I want to say he had 50-something catches last year, 54. I could be wrong there, but it was a pretty good number, somewhere around 50. That's a good number. If you can get that number and get close to that touchdown mark that he was able to make, I'm telling you, he's got a capable quarterback. I I understand. Shake it. Go ahead. Give me the the, Matumbo. Do it. I'll find someone. There's still money to be made for Todd Gurley in this league if he has a good year this year.
1: He already had a lot. He already made a lot of money. He's good. He did,
2: but he didn't make as much as he could have now. And now he's going to want to show me deal. Show me deals are a big deal in the NFL, man. And he's, he's with a healthy. quarterback. He's not healthy. He's, he's got a bad knee. Definitely. I know, but not healthy, but playing for eight weeks helps you while you, these other guys that you're targeting, maybe can do something.
1: Uh, listen, it's a no risk situation. So I may as well just throw a dart. There's nothing. I'm saying
2: throw a dart. I'm not saying spend 50 bucks on the guy. But if he goes for twenty,
1: I could spend fifty. It doesn't even matter. I, it's, I I literally have no one that makes any money on my team except for Antonio Brown.
2: <laughs> well, if you're trying and, to, acquire Antonio somebody Brown wasn't trade. mine.
1: Somebody somebody gave me a first round pick to take Antonio Brown right. to get him off their books. That's why I did it, and then I well, can cut
2: him. I'll tell you what. My suggestion to you also is, if you are looking to spend just to flip somebody. It's spend to flip Julio Jones, because Julio Jones will be a piece that you can cash in. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that's the guy. I that's that why I'm good.
1: bidding on him and Drake. Those two I think guys. that's good. Uh, who else was out go. there.
2: Anybody else of note or those are the big three, basically.
1: Uh, Alan Robinson.
2: Nah, not with that quarterback situation. I know he still was productive even with that quarterback situation last year, but I don't Whoever know. Whoever long-
1: Bids on Cooper Cup. I can match. So I'll end up with him. It doesn't make a difference.
2: Uh, Fitzgerald. Comp is a strong player, especially because there is no Golden debate.
1: Tate. Your guy, Golden Tate, he's he's out there. For you, he was pretty not productive
2: last year, wasn't he? <laughs>
1: I'm just saying, Yeah, yeah. i I I I think that I think the rookies is the key. So so what what do the projections look like for some of these rookies?
2: Well, here you go. Fantasy Pros came out with some of the projections for the rookies, and we'll start with Clyde Edwards-Helaire, who is, you know, right now. Fantasy points wise is linked somewhere around 217 on their site, and that puts him right after Nick Chubb and right ahead of Leonard Fournette. That is some seriously high point total for him. Um, they're projecting him somewhere around 700 rushing yards, 430 passing yards, and a combined 11 touchdowns, seven uh, wow. rushing touchdowns, 11? seven and a half rushing touchdowns, and three and a half receiving touchdowns. Now, the offense can support this, Craig but the touchdowns i think were you know that that's a good that's a good scenario i think the offense can support it the question is do you like the 1100 all purpose yards i think, I he think would that's have to,
1: realistic i don't think i think, think it's he's realistic but i think time.
2: he has to have the job by october right and damian williams is going away okay. well that's why i, mean, I, mean, I like, think to get this you have to have that to a certain extent you have to have damian williams fade away to get 1100 all purpose yards for him i year.
1: think that they would trust a veteran guy on the goal line that's what t- what teams normally do
2: yeah. Well, DeAndre Swift is interesting. He is put at seven hundred and four yards, almost the same, three hundred and fifty one receiving yards, uh, but in terms of touchdowns, far less because of the offense. Sure. Four and a half, uh four point eight. About right. And yeah. then one uh receiving touchdown. So again, that sounds like okay. Probably spot on. That's why I like fantasy pros. I think their projections are very in line. I think the Edwards Alaire ones are good. It's really asking, though, that he is part of this offense in that sense of Mahomes feels comfortable with him to get to the touchdown total. Um, they have Swift ahead of Tariq Cohn and Montgomery. Next on the list is Cam Akers, 691 rushing yards, 244, seven rushing touchdowns, 6.8 technically. So I don't know, man. I just feel like this is going to be a cluster all year. I'm staying away from this for 2020. I can understand Dynasty Leagues wanting to take the shot on Acres, but 2020 seems like a cluster to me for this backfield.
1: Yeah, I, I think for all of these guys, it is. And then I saw the report, I think it was yesterday, was it Frank Reich that said that Mack and Taylor are 1A and 1A or some kind of Well, like now that. that
2: you mentioned that, here's that one real fast. Marlon Mack, they have for 834 rushing yards, Jonathan Taylor, 806. They have them 1600 both. 1,600 rushing yards for these two, the two guys? of them the two of them and that offensive line is pretty damn good they also have them for 6.2 touchdowns 6.2 rushing touchdowns and both for about 120 receiving yards which again it's it's if there's an injury if that's their projection and there's an injury to one of them the other guy becomes incredibly valuable does that make them worth handcuffing in your mind i don't
1: i i don't think that 1600 rushing yards is coming from those two guys And by the way, if it is, then remind me not to take Hilton, not to take Rivers, not to take Pittman and anybody else in that offense. I mean, mean, how many rushes is that to get to 1,600 yards?
2: 400 rushes? Your other guy, too, that we were discussing, J.K. Dobbins, 625 rushing yards they have for him. And Zach Moss of Buffalo, 692. I think the Moss one is off. I still think Singletary holds on to that job collectively.
1: All right, uh, coming up next, it's time for us to dive into our season win totals. And we're gonna check out the FanDuel Sportsbook, which you can go online and check out right now. Couple of win totals in New York, the Jets and the Giants. We'll touch on those next. You're watching Sports Grid right here. This is Fantasy Sports Today, every single day, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. Make sure you're tuned in right here. Stay on the grid, get on the grid. We hit you with some FanDuel totals coming up next. Don't go away.